This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin wins more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country? Learn more about Wisconsin's cheese-making history at wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome B. Wilson, award-winning journalist and author of The Way We Eat Now. In today's episode, we're going to talk to B. about whether the future of food is all about taste or efficiency, the challenge of moderation in an age of overabundance, and we'll hear Bee's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, in our first segment, we launched the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia was fond of quoting Oscar Wilde, saying often, everything in moderation, even moderation. What she meant was, she didn't do diets or avoid certain foods. Why limit yourself when there was so much to discover and enjoy? Julia, herself blessed with height, a good metabolism, and a hearty appetite, returned to America from a Europe still recovering from the deprivation of World War II. So indulging in extra butter was a luxury, not a worry. But the America she returned to was at the beginning of a period of prolonged overabundance. Convenient and choice were progress. What was not to like about having more time for things other than women's chores like laundry and cooking? But in the process of societal denigration of the value of cooking, a lot more was lost than time. Julia was one of the first people to sound an alarm that this philosophy might be flawed, that pleasure from food battered. As much as people embraced Julia and her ideals, the issues that concerned her have only grown. With the rise of global obesity, climate change, and vastly more information about how food is produced, consumed, and distributed, a wider swath of people, including governments and healthcare providers, are questioning our priorities and the system of overproduction that is literally starting to kill us and the planet. Someone joining the vocal group of questioners and sleuths, like Julia, is multi-award winning food writer and journalist, Bea Wilson. The author of five books on eating, she's been named BBC Radio's Food Writer of the Year, and writes about food for the Wall Street Journal. And just like Julia, she lives in Cambridge, only the original one, in England. She joins us today to talk about her latest book, 
the way we eat now. Welcome to the podcast, B. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure. So your really terrific book covers so many important facets of today's food world, but I, I wanted to start with the paradox of choice. And you, you write, and I'm quoting one of your early statements in the book that really sets things up, that we are the first generation to be hunted by what we eat. How have these tables been turned? Mm. Well, I feel we haven't actually been hunter-gatherers for a long time, contrary to what the paleo dietists might say. <laughs> but, and I know it sounds a bit dramatic, but I suddenly thought, well, you know, we, we were farmers and we haven't been farmers for a long time, most of us. We've, we've, <laughs> most we, of us, yes. We live quite far from the soil, but we are the first generation who've actually been hunted down by our food. And I know that sounds overdramatic. You think of the life of a hunter-gatherer. You want to get something sweet. You go on some expedition to collect wild honey and you gather together some friends and you clamber up some rocks and it's um, an adventure, it's dangerous, it's perilous and you might come back empty-handed with nothing sweet. In today's world, if you feel like something sweet, you just head to the nearest store with any amount of money in your pocket, doesn't have to be much. Are you going to come back empty-handed? No. But not only that, you get to the store and sweetness is being pushed upon you. You might have walked into that store thinking, I just run out of milk and I need some fruit and I need some coffee. And you get to the counter and there are these candy bars and they're not small like they were for our grandparents. They're giant sized and this has become completely normalized. And maybe you only wanted to buy one bar, but it says buy one, get one free. And that seems like you're looking a gift horse in the mouth if you don't buy the second bar. That's what I mean about being hunted by food. Okay, we're not actually being chased down the street by a giant frappuccino. (laughs) (laughs) But sometimes it feels that way. It feels that way. It really feels that way. Um, Yeah. You know, I think, I mean, the amount of, I think part of what you're talking about is willpower and everyone's on a spectrum with willpower and and that's even affected by your mood and what happened before. And I recently spent the summer on an untold number of airplanes, so it's also an untold number of airports. And airport food is its own challenge, which is usually not very generous to health. Even the name brands that have entered airports are, it's not the same food, it's all sort of airportized. And certainly everything is in giant size packages. And you have to decide, okay, well, if I'm hungry, it's the only thing I can buy, and I haven't brought anything. But then you have to say, I'm only going to eat half the package. Which is so difficult. And especially if, I mean, I really struggle with this. Um, I think so many of our attitudes to eating are actually formed by the values and ethos of the earlier generation. So my mum was a wartime baby and she could not stand wasting food. So for her, it's absolute anathema not to finish what's on your plate. And I, as somebody that as a teenager was a compulsive eater and then struggled to manage that, and I now feel I'm in a very healthy, I hope, Julia Child, pleasure-giving, butter-eating, but not too much state with food, I feel sometimes you need to leave what's on your plate, and yet there's still some voice there telling me that's wrong. Well, I think that's funny, and my father's a big fan of the podcast, so he'll he'll be... amused and and concerned to hear this but he grew up the same way and partly it was the depression the the wasn't so much post-wartime but for him post being raised by a mother who was poor and then lived through the depression and survived but it's only so he finds the same thing extremely difficult waste is anathema which is great because now that's you know compatible with environmentalism but at the same time our norms didn't adjust back to the growth of what's on the plate 
And there's also, so it means you have to be really disciplined to say, I'm going to waste that because we have too much. But it, but it's like, I feel like we're the first generation that totally has to adjust to not having gone through a massive period of deprivation. Do you, do you think that's what the biggest thing that happens? Like every generation before had scarcity. Exactly. So I mean, I start by saying, and on the one hand, we're living through a fairy story with food. It's incredible that um, so many millions of people who would once have been living with the threat of hunger are not. That's the miracle of modern food, as we keep being reminded. But the flip side is, how do we navigate this world of abundance? And it's kind of a false abundance, because if you look at the number of people around the world who are simultaneously grappling with obesity and malnutrition, many, many people who have deficiencies of basic vitamins that their bodies should have and their food isn't giving it to them even though they're getting an excess of calories something really basic has gone wrong there and we haven't psychologically adjusted to it and yet we keep kind of putting the blame and the burden back on ourselves as if it's our fault that we were served such a giant portion or it's our fault that there's buy one get one free in the shop and yet none of us chose these choices that were offered. That airport example you gave is a great one. Because I sometimes think, oh, it's so hard. I mean, it's not so hard, it's a lovely problem to have. But when I, on the occasions when I go to a hotel and you have those buffet breakfasts, and it's so hard to choose what to eat because when you're offered everything, you think, how do I narrow this down? And I was thinking, in a way, the whole of life now is a bit like a hotel buffet breakfast, isn't it? You walk down the street and There are all these options, so many cuisines, so many different ways of eating, so many occasions that aren't really lunch or dinner when you could be eating. And to put it all on ourselves as individuals is almost impossible. Well, and I thought for me, reading your book, that was the biggest revelation because I will admit to being biased about people not having enough self-control when it comes to food. And I think that you... You lay that out in such a clear way that you totally persuaded me to look at that differently because I think that willpower is only one factor. And literally, as you were saying, when you have so much choice being thrown at you, bombarded at you all the time. And I I wanted to talk about that a little more because you use data. So you're not just using opinion. You use data really well in your your book to characterize how the obesity ode- epidemic is really not about personal moral failure, but importantly, it's kind of the result of this global food system. So you just mentioned that. How does not blaming the victim help us tackle obesity? Well, not blaming the victim means that you might actually do something about the causes of obesity, which is, I mean, there's been... You know, cause of obesity are incredibly complex social economic but there has been this huge environmental shift in the kinds and quantities of food available to people and I mean often when we talk about things like a sugar tax or Mayor Bloomberg's suggested reduction in the size of sodas that could be sold in New York City people talk about nanny state and they get very angry about mm, the thought of a front to liberty oh yes exactly how dare <laughs> they mess with our food you know it's a very human impulse nobody wants food removed from their plate do they but we don't consider the fact that this world of abundance we're living in was itself nanny state it was totally planned for you know after the second world war quite understandably the governments of the world thought we cannot allow our citizens 
to suffer famine and scarcity again, we're going to re-engineer the agricultural system for quantity. And there was a huge um, increase in the production of basic grains such as wheat, massive increase in soybean production in Brazil, a lot of which then went into animal feed, that then went into a huge explosion in the amount of meat produced, huge increase in sugar production. Like somebody has to eat all those calories if you're going to <laughs> produce that much food. You know, it's great. Again, it comes back to the miracle. We're not actually, you know, there are still, to our eternal shame, children in the world going to sleep hungry, but not as many as our grandparents' generation can remember. But um, how does it help to stop blaming the individual? Well, you might get meaningful change. I mean, it's if you look at obesity, it's not something that's just affecting a tiny, weak-willed minority of the population. It's affecting everyone, both sexes, all ages, around the world. Are we really to believe that there was a sudden collapse in willpower that happened <laughs> everywhere, simultaneously, from Malaysia to the United States to Colombia? I mean, no, you can track it. I mean, it, it, it travels. These diseases of diet metabolic disorder, tooth decay is often an early stage that comes before the obesity. Um, they travel the world along with the transport of industrialized foods, really high in sugar, fat and salt. And these are not those kind of wonderful pleasure enhancing foods Julia was talking about. And I just went back because I knew I was coming to meet you to read her book, My Life in France, her, the memoir. Mm. And there's a little bit where she talks about the arrival in the 1950s of all these kind of foods which were describing themselves as gourmet foods but weren't, such as instant cake mixes. And I think she refers to it as horrible glop at one point. Possibly. <laughs> um, but so I think the problem is people think um, by wanting to adjust this system, we're saying... There should be an end to pleasure. And to me, it's almost the opposite. It's like, how do we reclaim pleasure in food? Well, I think you're also pointing out in, in, in the book, too, that this fear of the nanny state, you're saying, well, actually, the nanny state already stepped in and has already created this system. And it had kind of good intentions, but it got carried away because there was such overproduction. They did such a good job of it. I mean, isn't, isn't the whole cereal industry... But that came from, oh my gosh, we have all this corn and wheat now. What the heck are we yes. going to do with it? And how can we then add value to it? So, I mean, the food industry, quite understandably, because it's an industry and it wants to make money, tries to figure out how can we make the most profits from this massive oversupply of raw materials of wheat and sugar. And this really startled me among the many other bits of data. The fact that out of all the calories the average person in the world consumes, not that there is an average person, but it comes down to about six basic ingredients it's animal products wheat rice sugar soy can't remember the last one corn um and something has to be done with these if you want to turn them to profit as the industry obviously does and there's here's yet another structural problem that doesn't come down to us as individuals there are much higher profit margins in selling something like a packaged box of breakfast cereal that's been turned into extruded flakes with sugar added and vitamins and a beautiful label with a clever font on it, that's going to make somebody a lot more money than just selling us a bag of unprocessed corn kernels. I also thought you you mentioned this a minute ago. I wanted you to tell us the snack food story about 
how obesity and deprivation can coexist. You use this parent Philadelphia parents case study. And I thought that was it was so telling to understand that other paradox. Could you tell us? about Yes, that? I found this such a sad story. I mean, I came across this study of um, low income Philadelphia mothers. And it was looking about the ways that they used snacks to manage their own moods and their kids moods. And a lot of them, when they were interviewed, they had quite negative feelings about meals as opposed to snacks. And they'd say of their kids, oh, he's not really big on eating, but he loves snacks. I found this extraordinary that somehow snacks were now almost defined in opposition to eating. But in their lives, I mean, they were, these were women who were spending long hours standing in line in the welfare office to you collect a check or have an argument about housing and they were having to manage their kids moods they didn't have much money to spend on food and in their lives to buy a giant bag of some kind of snack food commercial snack food made a whole lot more sense than it would have done to go home and buy 10 different ingredients and rustle up dinner from scratch even if they had the time and resources and kitchen to do that and it felt so sad that these these things which are sort of being sold as if they're in opposition to meals for many people without much money. I mean, it's you're not having meals. You're just having the snack. And that's w- contributing, right? It's changed the diet. So you're consuming over-processed, high-calorie food on a regular basis. and if- On a regular basis, on an empty stomach, without much else. I mean, it's it's the new face of hunger. I think we're just very slow sometimes to recognize the extent of hunger. Another... Th- thing people get angry about other than the nanny state is I often see on the kind of comment threads under a newspaper article if somebody's writing saying you know there's hunger in modern America or hunger in modern Britain somebody say there's no hunger you know look at child obesity and people can't seem to see that the two things could exist side by side I mean that a child who's just been fed a bag of Doritos maybe could still be hungry it's just a different form of hunger do you think we need to change the terminology then and stop? Because it's really health, not hunger, per se. I mean, the, the child's getting enough calories to survive, although those calories and the lack of nutrition in them may mean long-term health problems and possibly a shortened lifespan. But do you I, think- I almost think we just need to get back to food and what food actually... Like, that was a good word, food. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's a good word and it's a good thing. And it, there is supposedly, under the UN, a right to food. Um, but it should be a right to good food. But then, then you start to get into the, all these kind of class arguments about is good food just for somebody that can afford to shop at Whole Foods? And I'm not saying that at all. Good food, no matter what your income, it should nourish you, shouldn't it? It should feed you. I think that's quite a basic thing. And yet so much of what sold as food doesn't do that job of feeding us. That's something really strange, really wrong. And I don't think we have to be judgmental to think something needs to change again. And and do you think that given we were talking about it was this is somewhat a result or maybe all a result of government decisions that were made to prevent scarcity. Do you think then that is what has to happen now is that government regulations need to come in particularly because lobbies are now so powerful or do you think it's the onus is on figuring out the education of the public on how to control themselves. I think I mean, a whole <laughs> host of changes need to happen at once. And I don't think governments, practically the only initiatives they have done have been 
educating the public on supposedly how to control themselves. That doesn't work. We hate being told what to put <laughs> in our mouths. It doesn't. Plus, as I've tried to say, it isn't really willpower. It's something else. I think, I mean, education of a kind, to me, is definitely part of the story. And one of the biggest things I've been doing in recent years is I've helped set up a charity called Taste Ed, which I write about in the book, with an absolutely inspiring head teacher called Jason O'Rourke, who has a school here in the UK in Lincolnshire. Um, and his school is just all about food because he believes if you're looking at a child's future, what could be more important than teaching them how to feed themselves? But Taste Ed is about teaching kids um, about food. It's kind of, it kind of is Julia Child because it's ingredients. We bring delicious fruits and vegetables into the classroom and allow them to use all of their senses to interact with the food. So we're never saying you shouldn't eat that. We don't even mention the food they shouldn't eat particularly. If they want to talk about their love of Rice Krispies or potato chips, that's just fine. We'll talk about it too. But just by um, allowing somebody, showing somebody this is food, that seems a meaningful sort of education. But getting back to your question about what should governments do, I think they need to do so many different things at once. And sugar tax, which has been the main answer so far around the world, it's a start, but it seems really limited to me because what we've seen is that the result of the sugar tax, anywhere it's been introduced, is you get a huge shift to artificially sweetened beverages, which a gathering body of evidence suggests are equally implicated in type 2 diabetes, equally bad for the gut, better for tooth decay um and you know the <laughs> small sum steps yes. small steps and at least I mean, the the great thing about the sugary drinks taxes that have come in is it's trying to shift some of the onus back on the food companies and saying you know we want you to make a profit we you know we we're all okay with that. we're okay with that but could you please make a profit by selling somebody something that's good for them so i think industry regulation is a huge thing but I think we need to go back even further to agriculture. We need to, I mean, if you, that original nanny state you were talking about from the Second World War onwards of governments thinking, what kind of agriculture do we need to eliminate scarcity? We now need governments to think, in a world of climate change, what kind of agriculture do we need that will actually provide us with food that will be A, delicious, B, can maybe grow in times of unpredictable weather and see it's going to actually feed people, nourish people. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, and going back to that, as you described those six major ingredients, which are the majority of crop production around the world, and, and how do you change that, especially because it's not going to be sustainable around the world given climate change? Yes, we can already see that happening. with something like the Cavendish banana, which is the... 10th most consumed food in the world and isn't even a good banana which is kind of disappointing I mean I buy them the whole time like anyone else does because they sometimes seem like the healthiest most filling snack you could choose at that moment but um, by investing so heavily in that one type of banana it now looks as if they're on the cusp of succumbing to Panama disease which was what happened to the previous type of banana that the world relied on the Gros Michel which supposedly tasted much more delicious than the Cavendish, but none of us knows because it's it got wiped out. And yeah, you use that example in the book. Now, can you almost set it out like it's almost impossible, unlike certain things like heritage tomatoes, which have come back, but um, is it possible to find heritage 
bananas? I mean, it depends where in the world you live. If you speak to someone from the Caribbean, they'll say, oh, sure, you know, we have loads of different wonderful bananas. But I mean, so far as I'm aware, in the UK, there are certain specialist shops where you might be able to get interesting varieties of cooking bananas like plantains. Um, and some stores sell red bananas or those little, I kind of like those finger bananas. Yeah. Have you ever had those? Yeah. They taste completely different, don't yeah. they? The texture is different. But it's not a regular thing. I mean, if you went into any coffee shop anywhere in the world and they were selling a banana alongside the coffee, it would be the Cavendish. And that's kind of weird, given it's, it's not a good banana, according to people that know bananas. And I don't know bananas because I've grown up with the Cavendish. I think that's a fascinating story, and we'll look forward to listeners writing in and letting us know if they are finding different types of bananas wherever they are. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to talk to B more about the way we eat now. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin has storied cheese history that begins with Swiss, German, and Italian settlers in the 1800s and continues today with nonstop innovation and award-winning artisanship. Wisconsin was the first state to establish cheese-grade standards and the first to require that every cheese plant be overseen by a licensed cheesemaker. It is the only place outside of Europe where one can pursue an elite master cheesemaker certification. All of this helps Wisconsin Cheese win more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country. Take, for example, Decatur Swiss Cheese Co-op, who have made cheese since the 1940s. Steve Stetler is a Wisconsin master cheesemaker who developed several new cheeses for the co-op, including a European-style Havarti, a Swiss lace cheese called Stetler Swiss, and a Colby Swiss marbled cheese. His cheeses have won awards at the Wisconsin State Fair and the World Championship Cheese Contest. To learn more about Wisconsin's award-winning cheesemakers, visit wisconsincheese.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Linda Liu, and I'm the host of Feast Meets West, the show that celebrates Asian culture through the lens of food here on HRN. Listen to episodes like The Evolution of Chinatown with Numwa Tea Parlors, Wilson Tang, and New York Times' Elaine Chen. Catch our ongoing series, Women in Asian Food, and spotlight episodes with our heroes like Anita Lowe. You can find Feast Meets West wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back. We're talking to journalist and author B. Wilson about her latest book, The Way We Eat Now, How Our Age of Plenty Has Radically Changed What We Eat and How We Live. So I also like the book had some really wild, deliberately wild examples of unusual trends in eating. And I'm not sure I even know how to say this. Is it mukbang? I say mukbang, but I don't know. That's probably... I don't know. We might both be wrong or both be right. right. So it's a South Korean word. Yeah. Is that right? So what is mukbang and what is that phenomenon? Tell us about ourselves. Yeah. This was kind of new to me because I'm not the mukbang generation, but this is a huge thing for young people, especially in South Korea, but it's actually apparently very big in the States as well, of people 
watching very photogenic um, young people on YouTube consuming unfeasible quantities of food, usually junk food, and then just kind of talking about it in a really banal way as they're eating it. So the person is sitting at home, maybe with their own dish of convenience food, um, watching somebody else consuming three giant family-sized pizzas and thinking, well, maybe my pizza is not so big. Or, I mean, it's, it's hard to unravel quite what the psychology is that's going on there, but it is wild, isn't it? Well, and I thought you presented it also that people do this often, as you said, while they're eating themselves. It's like a, when they're alone, it's a form of companionship. Yeah, exactly. I think it's a remote form of companionship, as with many things on the Internet, that it's it does seem bizarre that we're kind of well, maybe as with many other things I write about, it isn't a choice. But I was going to say we're choosing to eat alone. I mean, in some of the examples I was documenting, there are examples of kids choosing not to sit at the family dinner table because they'd rather be upstairs in their bedroom watching mukbang eating their food up there with their screen to keep them company that seems to me maybe i'm old-fashioned but it's there's something about it that makes me feel really uncomfortable on the other hand i also feel always with food you have to say live and let live each to their own if mukbang's making somebody happy I don't know. But but maybe it's making someone happy as a substitute because I think Julia was very keen on that not just cooking and eating but the gathering around the table. And whether it's two people or a group of people and you know it's not going to happen the same way all the time, but there's part of the process of nourishment and human connection that it's too new a phenomenon, but what happens to society when there's less and less human-to-human connection at the table and more screen-to-independent. is It's a huge change, and I don't think anyone has really been able to measure it adequately because academic studies take many, many years to set up, and something like Mukbang has just travelled the world in a couple of years. And you think, what's going on here? I mean, how is our relationship with our phones changing the way we eat? Clearly, in revolutionary ways, one of which is that people are kind of wanting to eat only one-handed because you've got to keep one (laughs) hand free for your beloved object at all times. Also, the fact you can just order up anything via Uber Eats or one of the other delivery services on your phone, whereas kind of again gets back at your question of willpower. I mean, just those kind of obstacles, which for hunter-gatherers were huge, even for a previous generation, were pretty big between us and our food. The obstacles have just broken down completely you feel a desire you tap the food arrives Um, yeah it's a generation of children growing up with very immediate gratification very immediate and yet at some level the mukbang thing to me does suggest that we're still hungry for that bigger thing about meals that julia valued and that deserves to be valued which is sitting around a table which is somebody keeping us company while we eat i think that's profound and you look at the fact that so many households around the world are becoming single-person households. We can't be saying that eating alone is a terrible, sad thing and that everybody's doomed. I don't think that at all. I think taking time to cook for yourself and sit at a table can still be a beautiful, wonderful thing, and it needs to be celebrated more. Yes, and as uh, Julia's editor, Judith Jones, actually wrote a whole book about eating for one, but she did have 
other people in her life at different times. And I totally agree. I think no one should be looked down upon for going to a restaurant by themselves. It can be a terribly satisfying experience. But isolation is also a concern, as you say, with that growth. And I also think that you know, Julia came back to the States after being in France and Europe, which hadn't sort of caught up to American progress. And then she said, intuitively, she's just like, something is wrong with this. And I think you're saying the same thing, that we can apply our intuition to see that if you're trying to make a connection, then maybe that connect human connection around eating is important. And we don't, we can start pursuing that before there's necessarily scientific data to prove it. I think we can kind of assume that based on the whole of human history, can't we? That that cooking, which the anthropologist Richard Wrangham says is the act that made us human. It's what turned us from apes to humans. But cooking was a deeply social act right from the beginning. It was people sitting round a fire, wasn't it? It was people collaborating to make something. And that collaboration is still there, but it's so disguised and invisible so much of the time in our food supply. These things arrive in our lives, on our plates, almost as if by magic. And we don't have to think about the farmer that worked so hard many, many miles away to create it. So speaking of farming and agriculture, let's go back there a little bit. You used quinoa as a really interesting example of the unintended consequences of superfoods. And so I thought... I thought that's also really important to talk about. So I was going to say, you know, do you think there's a downside to eating quinoa? Um, Yes and no. (laughs) I mean, I love quinoa. Now that I've found, it took me a while to warm up to quinoa because at first I thought it was kind of bland. But that's, I guess, the point in a way. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, as with any grain, it's not a grain, is it? But grain-like food. Um, And then I found I now have this recipe I use from a Nadine um, Levy Red Zeppi book where she says you you fry the onions until they're almost bacony and then you kind of steam the quinoa and then you toast half of it so the texture yeah so I'm a quinoa fan however the problem with quinoa the same thing as the problem with avocados is what happens when something becomes a fad what happens when suddenly millions of people at one end of the world um, decide to eat something that people at another place in the world depend on for their livelihood and what we've seen with quinoa is that um, something that used to be a really nourishing, delicious staple for people in Bolivia became something that they were priced out of the market of. And the whole relationship between animals, land and people in Bolivia changed as a result of the West's rapacious appetite for quinoa, which in and of itself, you know, there's nothing wrong with quinoa. It's wonderful. It's high protein. It's, I mean, probably what we will get and what we need to get not just with quinoa, is phase two of quinoa. Already we're seeing more sustainable, locally grown quinoa here in Britain. There's a great company called Hodmadods who grow British-grown quinoa. That seems like a really sensible, excellent thing. So I'm not saying, I'm not blaming quinoa, but just the way in which something like either quinoa or avocado toast is another example. I mean, how did that take off? In less than five years, Yes, it's everywhere and must have it both toast and avocados right have been around yes. for quite a while they've been around for quite a while and i remember <laughs> visiting australia maybe 10 years ago and seeing avocado toast and thinking wow you put those things together i'd never would have thought of that and then thanks to social media and instagram and these things just travel the world and again nothing wrong with an avocado completely delicious someone from california would doubtless say you know avocados and toast have been around and we've eaten them 
but it's there's something quite odd when humans all over the world suddenly start craving the same food and it has these unintended consequences i say in the book it's a bit like if you're on a boat and suddenly everyone walks to one side of the boat and then the other end tips up and it capsizes and the people walking to that end of the boat by ordering the avocado toast in the hipster cafe to go with the flat white they're not really doing anything wrong they're not doing anyone any harm but there is a producer at the other end of the line and we don't spend enough time thinking about that well and i think you characterize quite well in the book of how I don't know whether it's 10 or you you can tell me how many years back, but this partly social media, but partly other things, these global trends in eating, that it used to be what was eaten in America was different than Britain, was different than France, was different than South Korea, was different than Japan. I mean, I didn't know what sushi was until I was an adult. Never had it before. Grew up in the Midwest. There's no sea. <laughs> so that's had a real impact though right i mean isn't avocado toast sort of part of that phenomenon it's a huge part of that phenomenon and that phenomenon as with many aspects of the way we eat now it straddles both the junk food and the artisanal food doesn't it and it's really odd i mean this was one of the big stories that i hadn't thought about enough but that human beings are omnivores that doesn't mean we eat everything it means we eat different food in different parts of the world depending on what's available so to reach a state where we are now, where almost all of us are eating the same food, the same avocado toast, whether you're in, I had avocado toast in Cape Town, a friend of mine who goes to Mumbai a lot has been sending me pictures of avocado toast in Mumbai. I'm not saying that's wrong. It's delicious. Where do the avocados come from in Mumbai? I don't know. I mean, it's probably more <laughs> well, suitable for it? growing them than Britain. I mean, like, <laughs> sure. why are we eating it? More yeah, to the yeah. point. I mean, it's yeah. that's... And it's just the wrong... Well, as a Californian, I can tell you avocados do not taste as good here as they do in I'm avocado sure green growing regions. Of exactly. They are right, but... But there are I mean, other things yes. that we used to put on toast that we, could be, <laughs> that we could be putting on toast again, which is it's it's very, very peculiar the way that human beings are kind of fitting themselves into a single culinary box. And again, coming back to Julia, what she was celebrating was here is French food, here is something particular and wonderful to this place. And I'm going to collect these particular recipes as if they're treasures. And I'm going to find out how they really, really should taste. And then I'm going to allow you to reproduce them. We're using an American stove and American flour and making a few adjustments. But she wasn't saying this is the food of the whole world, was she? She was celebrating the fact that it belonged to a particular people, a particular sensibility. If we lose that, we lose something really basic about food. Well, it's kind of like biodiversity with animals, right? If we're all eating the same food, again, going back to your examples of the overproduction of certain things, and but it's really hard to figure out what's the what's the change that's re is there a change that's required should we should a nanny state step in and be like all food has to be local and only of the region or i don't think you need to go that far but you could have a tiny um move back towards biodiversity and again i think it's it's consumption and production at the same time I and mean, we've because we've been supplied such a limited range of ingredients we have become a human generation with really limited appetites so that's the real problem. We don't even know what to ask for anymore. We don't even know what more diverse food would taste like. Yes, I know. I was eating paella in, in, in Barcelona, which I was very privileged to be able to do, and realized that it's traditional to have liver and awful ingredients in paella. 
but I'd never known that until, but those are the things that are, if we globally, like more people eat paella than ever used to be, you'd have to go to Spain or know someone who is Spanish, right? And now it's also kind of a global thing. More people eat paella, but we're not eating the offly kind, are we? We're eating it with chicken probably because what everyone in the world is eating at any given time (laughs) is mostly chicken. (laughs) And that's so new and you just, it gets to be normal. You just think, oh, that's just protein and everybody needs more protein or that's supposedly one of the things modern diet orthodoxy is saying other than people on the keto diet where it's all fat but um is it really paella anymore or is it just rice and chicken and smoked paprika i mean it's i feel really torn on this one Mm. because i remember um that kind of closed-mindedness some people had about food Mm. from my parents generation of here in Britain, people would be snobbish even about garlic. Oh, yeah, garlic was a, ah, still like a kind of yes. thing. Yeah. And that was so awful. There was a kind of racism, yeah. really, that played out through food. And I'm so happy to think that there's a sense of people sharing one another's cuisines and opening yourself up to South Korean flavors. You know, the fact that we eat kimchi now in Britain, like who would have thought, you know, fermented do cabbage. We? <laughs> we do. I think we do. I think it's it's catching on. Wow. We certainly eat tiramisalata, which, we certainly which eat tiramisalata. Is, is a shocking thing. And hummus. Right. Which I are... interviewed Claudia Roden last week, and she said when um, her dad arrived from Egypt in the 1950s, he could never have imagined that there would come a time when every British person had a tub of hummus, tub of hummus in their fridge. Um, because when she arrived, she could buy tahini, or she called it tahina then, from one shop in London in, where is it, Kilburn, I think? Mm-hmm, that would make sense, yeah. One shop. The yeah. whole of London. No, that, uh, ho- and then you'd have to buy your chickpeas and you'd have to soak them and you'd have to make it from scratch. And it would be much better than the hummus we now have yeah. in our refrigerators. But still, that is a kind of magical open-mindedness. I feel that the sharing of ideas, the sharing of cuisines, that's been great. And another positive story I had to tell was that people keep declaring that home cooking is just dead and nobody does it anymore. And I felt that a big part of the story that was getting missed out was men. If you look at the data, the number of men who make home domestic cooking part of their lives regularly has gone up hugely. And that's wonderful. Like, let's celebrate that. It might not be everyone. It might not be every day. But that's a massive generational shift. If I think of my grandfather's generation, it just there was that sense that it was, it was woman's job to cook. And therefore... It was something dutiful, and it wasn't necessarily something that women enjoyed very much. It, there wasn't necessarily that wonderful Julia spirit of kind of flambéing things. And well, I think possibly it's a celebration of chefs in in Western or in most cultures of the elevation of them. And chefs traditionally have been men, and um, or in some many cultures have been men, or people given that honorific. And so it's sort of also helped it be more acceptable, maybe to men to be a home cook or it's probably also just the, the overall gender balance discussion that's going on. Yeah, I think it's a wonderful change on so many levels. And the, it's very, very hard to measure how much people cook. I mean, of all the things I was trying to find data on, that's the hardest because you just ask people fundamentally. You, you come down to survey data and when someone says, oh, sure, I cook, that just means 100 things to 100 different people, doesn't it? Well, I think you were saying, though, that the data does show that people... But the data does show 
yeah, that that home cooking is not in this terminal decline. It's plateaued. Yeah, but it is. There is a series. I think just thinking about the foundation's mission to get people to cook more. I think what you did describe in the book is there's some glimmers like you just described, but the overall trend, unfortunately, has been down and is is the not over- necessarily rocketing up in any the, sense. The overall trend is down, but the kind of Michael Pollan story that we've been sold, that it's down and down and down and down and down, doesn't seem to be true from the data we can find. I mean, the, my main source on this, as of many, many things in the book, was a remarkable man called Barry Popkin, who's a professor of nutrition in the States who seems to have studied everything from the rise of snacking to trends for home cooking. But his data suggests that around 10 to 20 years ago, it went hugely down from the 1960s, the amount of time people spend on cooking. Well, you could say the amount of time people spend on cooking going down doesn't have to be a terrible sign. You know, I have an instant pot, like plenty of people I know, and I don't regard an instant pot meal as being an absolute disaster. I don't regard a an omelette that I've made according to a Julia recipe that takes me 10 minutes from start to finish as being a disaster. I regard that as a miracle. It's wonderful. There are many different kinds of cooking. It doesn't have to take hours and hours. But what he found was it, it went down significantly from the 1960s, but then it plateaued. It seems that it's not going down and down and down. And it may be, as with so many aspects of the way we cook, there's a hard core of people, maybe your listeners, who think cooking is too important to give up. And I think even in the modern world, even with email, even with Twitter, if you think cooking is something non-negotiable, you'll somehow find a way to fit it into the day. Well, I think that's certainly what we believe and advocate for at the foundation. So that is a wonderful way to stop there. Are you overwhelmed by too much choice? What's your vision for the future of the food world? Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org and let us know. Okay, after the break, Bee's going to reveal her Julia moment. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. Be what's your Julia Moment? Well, my, I sadly, because I grew up in England, didn't grow up watching her on TV. And now when I see clips of her on YouTube, or I think, wow, she just force of nature amazing we had no one like that on tv here but my julia moment is um reading her first book having grown up cooking french food from another food writer elizabeth david who i also think is fantastic by the way but elizabeth david's books kind of made this assumption that you already knew loads of stuff whereas opening julia's book for the first time my aha revelation moment was ah She's talking about pots and pans. She's telling me what pots and pans I need. She's making no assumptions. She's actually kind of holding my hand Mm. in the kitchen. And it was just kind of feeling of, um, I mean, some people might say, well, it's annoying if you don't have the particular pots and pans. But there was something about that sensibility that she was being so realistic and down to earth about food. And she wasn't speaking me, to me kind of de haut en bas there could be that sort of feeling of snobbery about French food 
And certainly in Britain, there was a lot of snobbery around that a generation ago. And she was just writing about it as this utter joy and utter pleasure. And yeah, I love her voice. I love her voice on the page and I love her voice, the bits that I've seen of her on film. Nobody's like her. No, I think that's a great description of how she came across to so many people. And I think it was also because she started from a place of not knowing. So she could always empathize with this is brand new to me or intimidating to me. And her view was, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. Let me help you. Yes. And you don't have to pretend that you know something that you don't know. She was big on that as well. Mm. And learning by doing is a huge thing for her, isn't it? Absolutely. Mm. Yes. Words to live by. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Remember, spread the word to follow us on social media. To keep up with the latest from the foundation, search at Julia Child on Facebook or at Julia Child Foundation, all one word on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T Shulkin, T S C H U L K I N on Twitter. Consider sharing a link to this episode with friends who'd find it interesting or even with skeptics. To keep up with B, search at Kitchen B on Instagram or Twitter. Her must-read book is The Way We Eat Now, published by HarperCollins Fourth Estate Imprint in 2019. Look for it at your favorite online or bricks-and-mortar bookseller. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH, thanks to my co-producer of the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineers at Heritage Radio Network. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorny. Please give us a review. It really does help listeners discover the show. And if you can do it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, all the better. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts wherever in the world. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the AHRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.